Lord, you said, let no one boast in their strength or in their wisdom or in their riches. All those things that we think protect us, Lord. We are to boast in this, that we know you and we are known by you and we are loved by you, Lord. So when the trials and hard times come, when just the moments of despair or um, heartache come, Lord, we know that you are our refuge and you are our strength. Lord, if you are for us, who could be against us? That no matter what comes against us, Lord, that you will turn it for our good. And Lord, that is a wonderful promise that we cling to. And so as we come before your word, Lord, teach us to rely and trust on you, Lord, every day, every moment, that second, Lord. We look forward to the time that's coming, Lord, when we see you face to face, Lord, in so doing that we would um, no longer have any hindrance, any sin that keeps us from clinging to you. So be with us time, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Morning. We're going to be looking at a Psalm chapter 131. So if you want to go there, it'll take me a little bit to get there, but we're going to look at Psalm 131. And it'll be up on the screen too. Nice and short, sweet, and hard to beat. Um, probably shorter than I'll be. Father, we do thank you again for this time that you've given us. Thank you for your word. We just thank you that you've spoken to us. God, that you've given us good news. Father, this uh, world, our own hearts, um, can be such in difficult states. I know that there's a lot in here that that are anxious, maybe depressed, Father. And I just just pray, God, that you would lift people out of anxiety today. Lord, that you would lift people out of depression and discouragement today. You would draw near and that you would help us. We thank you that you are a compassionate God who in mercy comes to us in our distress. God, our souls so often are unhealthy. And I just ask for health of soul in our hearts. God, that mental patterns, um, God, that some have had for years, by Your grace and by the power of Your Holy Spirit, that they would be broken. And that we would be leaning against you as our Father, no matter what comes. On God, our our soul is at rest. On you, our soul is at rest. So would you just do that today? And would you help me a whole lot? In Jesus' name, amen. It's a dangerous thing to preach on a sin that you feel like you're right in the middle of. Uh, After all, What do you call people who don't practice what they preach? Merriam-Webster calls the behavior of people who do things that they tell other people not to do hypocrisy. So I guess the other title could be Sermon of a Hypocrite or something like that. But I'm sticking with hope, anxiety, and the healthy soul. You know, sometimes we think that maybe we should only preach, maybe we should only talk about something that we have mastered ourselves But that's not really true. None of us, and that includes anyone who enters the pulpit, has mastered the living God, has overcome sin and the presence of indwelling sin. The only preachers around, apart from our Lord Jesus Christ, are sinning preachers. Obviously, there are some obvious issues that you shouldn't preach if you're currently involved with, and obviously some that you may need to be removed for 
um, if you are involved with them. But today, I'm going to be talking about an area of life that I have not mastered. (laughs) In fact, I think I've struggled more with it the last few years uh, in my life, my 36 years, um, than any other. And I'm talking about the sin of anxiety. I think I've always been a touch neurotic in my own kind of introverted way. It's played out in many different ways in my life, um, whether through my wacky stomach, um, whether in my relationship at times with God and sometimes my relationship with those that are closest to me. But I've definitely seen the roots of the sin of anxiety in stressed out frustration, uh, in worry, in fear, more clearly than I used to see or at least used to notice. But the sermon's not about me. Um, The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard described anxiety as a kind of dizziness of existence. We have uh, other names for it, like stress. And there's a lot to be anxious about um, in the world at large. It seems lately that our world and our nation is fraught with tension, earthquakes, ISIS or ISIL, the Ukraine, Gaza Strip, politics, Supreme Court decisions, rise of secularism, dying churches, racial tensions, gender and identity confusion. Our news basically makes its living reporting on the mess that we humans make and the results of a fallen creation under the curse. We also have personal worries. We have family anxieties. Maybe your child's going to become a teenager. Or maybe you've just had a baby or are getting ready for another one to enter the house. Uh, Maybe it's concerns about job stability or retirement. Is it going to be there? Will it still be there even if I retire? Uh, health concerns. We can all think of a million reasons to be, to be anxious, to be worried over unknowns, present, future concerns. And for some of us, anxiety isn't really that much of an issue. Some of us are kind of just have the kind of personalities that take life as it comes. But for others, it's kind of like anxiety is a sick hobby um, that we're always chewing on. But all of us in this room deal with this sin in some level. Notice I said sin. In our culture, anxiety is simply treated as a mental disorder and not a spiritual one. It may need to be treated as both, depending on the person, depending on the situation, but it's never less than a spiritual issue. According to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, anxiety disorders are the most common Mental illness in America. It affects about 40 million adults, 18% of the population. The psychiatric field treats anxiety with many medications. The National Institute of Mental Health shows that Xanax, Ativan, Clonopin are common treatments. Also antidepressants like Effexor and Wellbutrin are used. And of course there's a tons more. Medications abound. But we need more than medication. We need more than counseling because that alone cannot forgive sin. And that alone cannot successfully fight what is a spiritual problem. The Apostle Paul and Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners himself, he commanded us, they commanded us, do not be anxious, which means it's sinful when we are. Anxiety erupts inside of us, inside of our sinful souls. It's a result of our separation from God. But what is the soul? I thought about that. What is the soul? It comes right down to what it means to be human. And all kinds of theologians, philosophers, psychologists have tons of different opinions, and it can be even difficult to express in words. But there tends to be three categories. Some have reduced the soul simply to the physical. The soul is just really just physical reality. Everything goes down to matter, to materialism, that basically we're just chemicals that are firing 
in our brain. Others have broken up human beings into three separate parts. Like we have a, a physical component that's over here. We have uh, a soulish psychological component that's right over here in this box. Over in this other box over here, there's a spiritual part. But I think a more appropriate biblical model is one that neither reduces everything down to the physical or basically just chops us up into several different parts and compartments, but is one that considers men and women created in God's image in a more holistic way. I like the way Dr. Ed Welch, one Christian counselor, put it, that we are embodied souls. We are embodied souls. Yes, we are physical. We're flesh and we're blood. But there is also a spiritual soul that is mind, heart, and will, and that there's actually an interrelationship that goes between both of them. They are meant to coexist. They're meant to be in relationship with one another to be whole. Because God made both. God called both good. Body and soul make up you. It's what makes you, you. So today we're going to be primarily talking about the soul, our, our inner, interior, spiritual life of mind, heart, and will. And we know that the soul is a big deal in the Bible because the Hebrew word for it is used 755 times in the Old Testament. 755 times. It comes from the moment in Genesis when God formed man, when God breathed life, into man. In its literal form, the word is tied to throat and neck. And it basically means possessing life. And we know from the Bible, we know from Genesis 3, that our bodies and souls have become broken, become flawed, become disoriented because of sin against the God who breathed life into us. And one of the evidences of this is the pervasiveness of anxiety in our unhealthy souls. So, how do we fix this? How do we deal with this? What can we do with our anxious and worried hearts? Well, like anything, we need to start with God. We need to start with God, what God has said, what God has done about it. And this doesn't mean, just to be clear, that when you deal with anxiety, you don't seek out medical and professional help. You may need to. God in His common grace has given us doctors, has given us medicine. And that really shouldn't surprise us because the breadth of being a sinful and fallen embodied soul runs to and from our interior life of the soul and the external physical body. There's not always a clear line between the two. So we don't just grab verses of the Bible and just paste them across our, our hearts but we must recognize that the way to treat a spiritual sin problem is what God has said in his word and what God has done in the person and work of Jesus Christ. There are other temporary remedies. There are all kinds of them, like medicine and counseling, but there's only one permanent, lasting remedy, and that's what God has accomplished. God has not left humans hanging. He's not abandoned us. He speaks to us in the Scripture. He speaks to us in His Son, Jesus. He's given us good tools. But more importantly, He's given us good news. He's given us good news to combat anxiety in our souls. And this point is very important. He does not just give us tools and methods. The Bible, what many of us have in our hands or on our, on our phones, the Bible isn't a self-help book. It's not a book of divine principles that we're supposed to go and apply, that we're supposed to just go and do. The book gives us God's news about something that He has done, something that He has accomplished. It's not a checklist for us to accomplish. He gives us doctrine. Doctrine is the explanation of what has happened as a result of what Jesus has done. But I think today I want to start with the practical and then move to the doctrinal. Sometimes we go the other way, but I think we have a good reason today to do that, to move from practice to news. So let's look at this psalm together. One Protestant reformer, he said this about the book of Psalms. I thought this was excellent. 
I've been accustomed to call this book, I think not inappropriately, an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities. In short, all the distracting emotions which with, with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. So, we have a distracting emotion in our lives. Run to the Psalms. They show us they are windows into the human soul. They show us men of God crying out of the depths and perils of their humanity to a holy God, to a gracious God. And so we're going to look at Psalm 131. Charles Spurgeon said, This is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Some of your Bibles, you'll look and you'll see a title of this psalm. And we learn that it's a psalm of ascents, a psalm of ascents. It's not a standalone psalm. Some are. But it's one in a long string of psalms that go from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And the meaning of a sense is basically just what it sounds like, going up. And in these psalms, there's a focus on Zion. There's a focus on Jerusalem. And they probably represent this idea of going up to these places. They were likely a, a hymn book that God's people sang as they went to annual feasts, as they went to festivals in Jerusalem. And though we're not Hebrews with these traditions, all of us in this room are on a journey. Every single one of us is at different places in our lives and in our Christian maturity. Some of us may not even be believers. We may not even be Christians. We may not even really believe this. But every one of us today should ask, what song is my soul singing? What is lifting my heart? What crushes it? What are my hopes? What are my dreams? Right now, today, right now, what is consuming your soul? What are you thinking about? What are you passionate about? What are you afraid of? Look at it. Look at your soul. Does it, does it need a new song? This psalm is supposed to reorient our souls upon the only hope that lasts forever. God. The triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The title also shows us that it's a psalm of King David. We don't know when this psalm was written in his life, but we do know, we do know with David that he knows the ups and downs of human experience. If anybody knows, David knows. He knew what it was like to be relatively unknown as a shepherd boy. He knows what it's like to be exalted all the way up, to have his status go as high as king of all the land. He knows what it's like to be hunted. He knows what it's like to be hated, to be sought out, to be killed and have to hide for it. He understood the feelings of depression, hopelessness, anxiety. He knows what it feels like to hear the news that your child has died. He's known that news from his infant child. He's known that news from Absalom, an older child. He knows family dysfunction. He knows what it's like to have one of his boys kill another one of his boys because they sexually abused his daughter. He knows what it's like to experience sin, the passion of lust, and to act upon it, to experience the consequences of adultery, desire to cover up his own sins, and commit murder to cover his tracks. He knows what it's like to be removed from the kingdom that he was king of, that he ruled. He knows what it's like to lose position. He knows what it's like to be cursed, to be rebuked, to be taunted, to be mocked. We could go on. But pretty much at any one of those times, David had reason to be anxious, reason to be worried, reason to be afraid, reason to be hopeless. Many of his circumstances, many of his own sins could have left him with his soul crushed and just said, I give up, I'm done. 
But in this psalm, we find this David, this emotional poet, this strong leader, this sinful man, this successful man, this complicated individual at rest with his soul, with great hope in his God. His soul was not always healthy. But we know that the biblical verdict on his life was that he was a man after God's own heart. He was a man after God's own heart because his soul was at rest in God. Augustine wrote in his confessions, Our hearts are restless till they find rest in you. And this psalm shows us the way to rest in God. So let's learn. Let's learn from David practical ways to cultivate quiet soul rest, to cultivate hopefulness in our hearts, in the place of restlessness, in the place of anxiety. And as we read that, you may say, well, anxiety isn't in there. It's not in the psalm. And you're right. Anxiety, the word, is not in the psalm. But all of the symptoms are there, especially if you read it in reverse. Christian counselor David Pallison gives us the anti-Psalm 131. The anti-Psalm 131. Self, my heart is not proud. Excuse me, my heart is proud. I'm absorbed in myself. My eyes are haughty. I look down on other people. I chase after things too great and too difficult for me. So, of course, I'm noisy and restless inside. It comes naturally. Like a hungry infant fussing on his mother's lap. Like a hungry infant, I'm restless with my demands and worries. I scatter my hopes onto anything and everybody all the time. Amen. No. Maybe I agree in the sense of I've been there. But look back at the psalm. The first two voices, or, or the first two verses, are the voice of David, the voice of the individual. And verse one is filled with the negative word "not." My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. So he's describing to us everything that his interior life is not. And we need to talk to our souls. Healthy people with healthy souls talk to themselves. We see this throughout the Psalms. We see it in a psalm like, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Talking to your soul. Hope in God. Why are you downcast? Why are you anxious, soul? Hope in God. We need to question our soul, command our soul, tell our heart no. And sometimes you have to do it just like that. You have to say no. It's a good word. Some of us don't use it much uh, in our lives, and it causes anxiety. Um, some of us need to use it more in our own hearts. We need to plaster that word no all over our soul. We need to write a Dear John letter, sonnet, to our anxieties. But we need to do this in the presence of God. We need to do this in the presence of God. Again, this isn't a, a self-help thing. This isn't just a positive thinking, mind over matter, you know, move that we're going to pull on our souls today. The first two words that David sings, the first two words are, Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. So we say and we sing this in the presence of a sovereign, caring Father. You're not pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. You're not repeating magical mantras. You're doing it as a worshipful act before the one who is worthy of worship. And this is where the healthy soul begins. This is where the healthy soul starts. The healthy soul begins with recognizing God. Oh, Lord, who is higher than you? Recognizes God. You're, you're bigger than me. You're God. I'm not God. He can handle a whole lot more than you can. So, give him your problems. Give him your issues. Unload your soul on him. Some of us don't do that. It's like we're afraid to tell God what's going on. Ridiculous. Your frustrations, your fears, your anxieties, unload it. Tell him about it. Get it off your chest, onto his. He made your soul. And your soul will stay restless until it rests in him. Peter, the disciple of Jesus, said hundreds of years later in one of his letters, like we read this morning, you are to cast your cares off your heart. Cast your cares off your heart and put them in the lap 
of God. Put them in the lap of the God who cares for you. And I'm convinced that many of us in this room don't really believe this. So much of my life is spent not believing that God cares for me. And that's the source of much of our anxiety, that we don't actually realize how much God loves us. That God is for us, for those who trust Him. He's not for you had planned to be. He's not for who you want to be. He's not for who you wish you had been. He's not for who you will be when you finally get everything all figured out. But right now, with every single one of your issues, every single one of your sins and anxieties, God cares for you. God loves you. God cares for you. He has affection for you. Back to the psalm. The first two things that David says to God is that his heart is not lifted up. That his eyes are not raised too high. And this is simply humility. Humbleness. David is saying that his heart and his eyes are not proud. In the corridors of his soul, he doesn't exalt himself, lift himself up. He doesn't place himself above God or above others. In other words, David knows his place. His soul knows his place. All of us are... Well, basically, we're, we're narcissists by nature. We love ourselves. We're self-addicts. And pride poisons the soul because it is completely opposite to who we are by our very nature. It is utterly opposite. We are creatures. We are not the Creator. So another step to a healthy human soul is just acknowledging that you are not God. One commentator wrote, The difference between God and us is that God never thinks He's us. The difference between God and us is that God never thinks he's us. Well, we do. We, we think that uh, we're him often, or at least we pretend that we are. I think one of the essences of pride is pretending. Much of pride is pretending to be something that you're not. That you're not. And we're great at it. Christians, we're great at pretending. It's one of our favorite fruits of the Spirit, acting like we have them. We want to save face. We want to keep up our appearances. We want to look better than we are. But let's not do this. You don't need to air all your issues, all your sins out to every single person, but you need to do it with someone who knows and loves you. And, of course, the Father loves you the most. We as a church were made up of sinful people who trust Jesus, so let's beware of our own hearts in acting like church is made up of just a bunch of people who got everything all together. It's all good. I know Jesus. Everything's, everything's great in the world. It's all right in my heart. Be careful. Be careful with that. The church is made up of broken people made new by Jesus. Broken people made new by Jesus. So let's not pretend. Pretending will shatter your soul. Pretending will shatter the souls of the ones closest to you. It leaves bodies. It can be your own. It can be your spouse's, your kids, your family. It can be someone else's. But pretending is dangerous. It is pride. Another way we are prideful before God and man is in our desire for control. Our desire for control. Our desire to be our own sovereign. To be in charge. Also in our drive to comparison. But the first one, control. We want control of our lives. When life feels like it's out of control, we get anxious. We get worried. We want to control it. We're fine with God being our co-pilot. Well, whatever that means. But we don't want Him at the helm, even though He is at the helm. God is sovereign. The illusion of control in your life may work for a while, but it will always crash and burn every single time. You need to recognize it. Your desire to control everything as pride, as self-exaltation. You cannot ultimately control what happens in your life. And you cannot ultimately control other people. can't be done. God is the only one sovereign over you. He's the only one sovereign over others and the only one sovereign over all of history. Let go of control. The idea of haughty eyes. Notice the eyes here, not just the heart. It's also in this text. And all of us have visibly seen this. We've seen this with people. Some people you just look at, and it's like there's like a smirk in their eyelids of haughtiness. 
flickers with arrogance. But all of us, that smirk is in all of us. It manifests itself in our desire to constantly compare with others. The internet and social networking make this temptation even worse. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, they're all platforms for comparison. I use all of them. But they are platforms for comparison. Though the text here focuses mainly on just plain vanilla pride, comparison actually works in two ways. There's just, again, that plain vanilla pride that latches on to the appearances of always being the best, the smartest, the prettiest, the best homemaker, the best husband, most spiritual. But there's another manipulative prideful comparison, and that's self-pity. Always feeling like the worst, the ugliest, the stupidest, the least spiritual. Woe is me. Everything is so bad. I'm such a victim kind of way. Both are prideful. Both are poisonous to the soul. Both demonstrate a wicked heart and corruption of soul. Unhealthy. The way out of the pride in this text is to keep your heart low. Keep your heart low by looking up to the one who is high and exalted. To cry out, oh, Lord, focus on what he is, who he is, what he's done. Believe that his opinion of you is ultimately what matters, not someone else's. It's in the fear of God, not in the fear of man. Peter knew this. Again, that text we read earlier. Casting our cares and anxieties are an exercise in humility. You must humble yourself under God's mighty hand. And casting is an act of humbling. In the last phrase of verse 1, David says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. The thought here may be one of being focused upon your own accomplishments or being far too intellectually and theologically fixated on the secret things of God. Two things possible there. In our capitalistic society, we reward drivenness, success, and there's definitely godly ambition, but it's way too easy, or it's way too easy to be consumed with what we've accomplished. And there's a busyness that's so focused upon doing one thing after another and achieving greatness that tears down rest of soul, that is rooted in pride. The words here in this, in this verse for occupy myself are tied to the walk of life. So what is your life shaped by? Are you always shaped by the next thing? Like a massive checklist of busyness that sits over you that always has to get done? You're always trying to do too much, trying to fix everything? Some of us try to work miracles and wonders every day. Only God can do it. You need to stop. You need to rest in Him and pray. He is the wonder worker. He does great things. Trust Him. The other piece here is being overly preoccupied with the mysterious things of God, His secret providence, His secret will, trying to understand what cannot be figured out. Trying to think of what are all the reasons why God does all that He does. If we do that over and over again, get so consumed with things like the problem of evil, where did sin come from, all, all kinds of questions, philosophical ones, theological ones, that we can look at, and it can be helpful at times, but when we become overly fixated upon them, they lead to depression, they lead to discouragement. And it shouldn't lead there. It should lead to worship, to bowing before Him. The Old Testament book of Deuteronomy put it this way, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. In 29.29 of Deuteronomy. God's revelation to us will always lead to questions, but our preoccupation is always to be what he has revealed and not what he has not revealed. There are some things you will never figure out in the Bible. There are some things that have happened to you that you will never figure out, that you will never have a perfectly worked out answer for in this lifetime. Even in the new heavens and the new earth, we're not going to have figured out the depths of God completely. And so our focus is to bow in awe, worship at his mysteries, and not to raise our fist demanding answers that he answer us. 
Love what he has said and go no farther. Worship, worship. Don't try to figure out the sovereign God of the universe. Now the second verse. Here we find David's soul at rest like a quiet baby in his mom's arms. Verse 2. There are a few different ways actually to interpret this. um, What's a very picturesque... um, moment here in the Psalms. The Hebrews, they probably sang this song, like I said, as they went up to Jerusalem. Many of them would be moms carrying their kids as they sang. And some scholars take it to mean a child who is fully weaned, mature, never to nurse again. Others take it to represent a child resting contented with her mom, possibly after feeding. After my research, I'm going with a second option. The New Living Translation puts it like this. I have stilled and quieted myself just as a small child is quiet with its mother. Yes, like a small child is my soul within me. Another translation puts it like this. I have learned to feel safe and satisfied, just like a young child on its mom's lap. So I think what's actually being pictured here is a soul that looked like my daughter Grace did after she nursed. I can remember Grace after she nursed, and she worried about nothing. Basically, she had pretty much a breast milk buzz. That's what she had. Her eyes would basically roll all the way in the back of her head. Her, there would be this smirk that just kind of came across her face in this daze. And it was, you know, I mean, it was, it was like she was hitting the sauce a little too much. She was completely content. She was happy. She was safe. She was satisfied, utterly oblivious to anything else that's going around her but closeness to her mom. That is what our soul should look like. It's completely opposite to the picture of an anxious, frantic, restless baby, restless soul. Our soul should be that satisfied in God. Childlike trust. Childlike hope. So what's the state of your soul? What song is your soul singing? Are we wailing like a baby, restless, out of control, or like a baby, after nursing, are we satisfied, quiet, at rest, safe, full? So how do we do this? How do we we calm and quiet our souls? The idea here is making your soul level with that calmness and quietness that it speaks of. Smooth, unruffled, calm sea instead of a choppy and wavy ocean. A soul fed, a soul happy in God. We just learned a few negative ways that we can do this. Repent of our pride. Repent of comparing all the time. Repent of your desire to control yourself, everyone around you, your circumstances. Repent of your godlike desire to work wonders, to accomplish everything. Repent of being preoccupied with the things that are beyond your understanding. That's a huge way. It's right there in the text. But what's the positive thing to do? You know, don't just tell me what not to do. Tell me what to do. And I think the first implicit, implicit answer is look outside yourself. Verse 1 is simply just get over yourself. Just get over yourself. But coming up in verse 3, it's get out of yourself. Quit being so wound up inside with your issues and you, 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 you. Look outside. Look at the switch between verses 2 and verse 3. David shifts from the personal to the community. It shifts from being the voice of the individual to the voice calling out to the community. It moves from the individual's private experience with God, O Lord, to the individual's corporate experience with God's people, O Israel. This itself is an attitude of a healthy soul. Individualism, excessive introspection kills. The private spirituality that sometimes we as evangelicals are so infatuated with can actually be very dangerous. It's not just you and God. It's not. All of us will stand before God to give an account individually, but all of us are connected to his people. To be in Christ is to be 
in Christ with every other believer. So the call to hope here is a call for us, a call for all of us to hope. It's a reminder that we're not on this journey alone, that we're in it with God, with His people. That if we try to live apart from either one, our souls will become disoriented, will become destructive. In a recent sermon, Christian counselor Paul Tripp said, the doorway to hope is personal hopelessness. The doorway to hope is personal hopelessness. And that's exactly right, and it works well here. You can't permanently, you can't permanently solve your own anxiety. A a medication can't permanently solve your anxiety. A therapist can't permanently solve your anxiety. You can't make for yourself a healthy soul. Healthy souls see that they're helpless, that they're hopeless, and that God is their only hope. And so that's the explicit answer of the text. Look outside of yourself, implicit, everyone else, everyone else around you, and then look outside to God. Put your hope in God. Place your hope in something outside of you, in the God of the universe. Hope in Him and do so forever because He is the only one who is eternal. Hope in God kills anxiety. Hope in God quiets the soul. It weans the soul off of ourselves and off of the world because it waits in expectation of all that God will do and all that God has done. We're not going to see everything perfectly right now. We may not even see God put the world right in our lifetime. But we will see it. We will see it. Hope expects, expectation is built into this word hope. It expects God to act on our behalf because he has promised to and because he has, because he never fails his people. He always keeps his promises. He will never fail. He will never lie. I'm thinking I'm so emotionally fickle at times. I mean, it, 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 it's really ridiculous. And it's mainly on the interior of my heart. So up and down. My hopes rise and fall. But the hope of this passage is not up and down. The stability of our hope is not the hoper but it's the one we've hoped in. Hope is always connected to God. It's always connected to the object. And in this text, there's security here. Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. There's permanence here. The object of our hope always keeps His promises. So stop, quit putting your hope in you. Quit living so anxious about all you haven't done or all you've got to do. Quit comparing yourself to others. Quit trying to be God. Rest in Him. Rest in who He is. Rest in what He's promised. God is to be your hope. I call you to that. This verse calls you to that hope in the Lord. He renews, He remakes our broken souls. He is the object of hope for the healthy soul. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, I want to tie this specifically to the good news of the Gospel. Because I don't just want this to be a how-to sermon. How do we fight anxiety? How do we figure it out? How do we do it from Psalm 131? Those only work for like a day, if that. Maybe a week, maybe a month. It's like New Year's resolutions. They always fail. And we fail and we get discouraged and we get hopeless and anxious and everything else. So I want us to look quickly at a passage in Hebrews. Hebrews 6. 9 to 20, don't worry, I'm not going to go over all these verses. I'm just going to focus on a few. Hebrews 6, 9 to 20. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham since he had no one greater by whom to swear he swore by himself saying surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham having patiently waited obtained the promise for people swear By something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, 
we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. A lot there. But notice how the connection between the soul and hope is found here as well as in Psalm 131. But this text is less about telling you how to do something as it is proclaiming to you what someone else has done for you. In fact, hope, hope in the entire book of Hebrews, hope in the whole book of Hebrews is never concerned with a hopeful attitude inside of you. It's always concerned with the objective work of God in Christ outside of you, every time it's used. And this is the secret to the death of anxiety in your life. It's not about how well you hope, about how well you flex your hope muscle. It's about looking at the reasons for your hope, looking at the person behind our hope. The author of the Hebrews in this chapter has just seriously warned the community seriously warn them. first part of chapter 6 is one of the most debated texts in the Bible because it deals with apostasy and falling away. It deals with the impossible, horrifying thought of crucifying Jesus two times. But at this point in the chapter, in verse 9, the author is amped up. He wants to make sure that who he's writing to is not discouraged but encouraged says that he is convinced that something better than falling away is theirs. Something that accompanies salvation, not damnation. So he's not after turning on believers' anxiety, but turning it off. Verse 18 says that what he is saying is meant to give them strong and powerful encouragement. Why? Because hope is not a wish. Hope in this verse, in this section, is doubly sealed with the unbreakable and irrevocable promise of God. And God does not lie. And sealed with the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. And rather than unpack every piece of it, I just want you to see two main things here. Two main things. It's this. The hope of our souls is anchored to Jesus. And Jesus is anchored to the hope of our souls. The hope of our souls is anchored to Jesus, and Jesus is anchored to the hope of our souls. Verses 19 and 20. Look at it. It pictures hope as an anchor, as an anchor of the soul. It's strong. It's stable. Stable as a ship anchored to the bottom of the ocean. And the strength of the anchor is not your ability to hope. It's the object of your hope. It's the work of Jesus on your behalf. Notice how it's hope that enters behind the veil. Hope enters behind the veil at the end of verse 19. And then look who's there. Who is there behind the veil? Jesus. Jesus is there. This picture is one rooted in the Old Testament about access to the very presence of Almighty God. No one in Israel could go in the inner place except the high priest. No one. No one could go there in the very presence of God. And If you want to talk about anxiety, sinners trying to enter the very presence of a holy, perfect, just, righteous God is, that's about the epitome of fear and anxiety that there is, is the epitome. And one day, all of us are going to face him. But the question is, are you going to face him on your own merit? Are you going to face him on your own hopes, yourself? Or will you face him with your hope placed in the sun? The Christian hope is that there has been one who has gone into the very presence of God, and that person is Jesus. And now Jesus is in the heavenly sanctuary. Jesus died, risen, exalted, in the heavenly sanctuary with the Father. And that our hope is not supported by our performance, but by his priestliness. It's what he has done as high priest. It's what he has done as the sacrificial lamb to enter the presence. Also, that word forerunner. Amazing word. Webster's defines forerunner as this. One who 
announces or indicates the later arrival of another. One who announces or indicates the later arrival of another. So the fact that Jesus is your forerunner, if you think, well, he kind of went before us. Well, great. How does that help me? I mean, he's, 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 he's going before. It's not just that. It's not just that Jesus has gone before us. It's that he is the forerunner. It's not just the Father doing a head count, waiting to see everyone who's going to follow Jesus get in there. But it's that because he has arrived, you will arrive. It's the assurance that more are coming, that more will follow him. His presence there guarantees your presence there when you trust Christ. So your hope is not just bound to Jesus. Jesus is bound to you. His entrance into heaven announces your entrance into heaven. I think some of us are thinking, what, what happens if we just can't take it anymore? You know, what, what happens if we have a nervous breakdown in light of just the brokenness of our own lives or the brokenness of, of things around us? What happens if we lose our minds to, to, to Alzheimer's? What happens if we end up sinning horribly? What about this physical pain that just continues to eat at me day after day? What about relational pain in my family that never goes away? The Christian hope is not about your circumstances. It's not about the activity of your soul. It's about the activity of the anchor. It's not just that your soul is anchored to Jesus, but that Jesus is anchored to your soul. He's gone before you. And if you've trusted him, even with childlike, just a childlike faith, little tiny mustard seed faith, if you've trusted him, you are coming with him. Some of us are desperate to hear good news this morning. Our souls have been beaten up. We're tired. We're anxious about the future. We're depressed about the past. And this is good news for us. This is good news for us. The hope of your soul, if you trust Christ, is anchored to him and to what he has done. And he, Jesus, is anchored to the hope of your souls. Communion is a celebration of hope. A celebration of hope. The meal of hope. It's a visible reminder to our souls that Jesus is our champion. It's a way every single week to get re-anchored. It's saying our hope is not in our sinlessness. Our hope is not in our performance. Our hope is not in how our week was, how work is, how our marriage is, how our parenting used to be, or what's coming down the pike for America and for this world, our hope is the fact that Jesus broke his body. Jesus shed his blood to bring us to God, and he will do so. Jesus said, no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand, and he does not lie. Jesus does not lie. He is there in the heavenly sanctuary on your behalf, and by faith you're anchored to him. So as we eat and drink, we are hoping, we are expecting that one day he is going to bring us into his own presence. One day in the new Jerusalem with the Lamb. All the anxieties about death, all the anxieties about our own sin, about the devil and evil will be banished, will be gone forever. So Israel, so people of God, so Redwood Christian Fellowship, let's hope. Let's hope in Jesus from this time forth and forevermore. Team can come on up.
letter to the Corinthians, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So, Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for all that he is one for us. And we look to Him now. We place our hope in all that You've done. What great news. Holy Spirit, may You apply this to our hearts. May we learn the beauty of Psalm 131. May we learn the radical hope that You have achieved for us. Oh God, give us healthy souls by your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name.
Amen.